Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real grateful for this chance to be with you today. Today I want to talk about what has Mormonism shifted to become and what does that mean? Like what is left once we understand? And I want to talk about six specific areas that the church has deeply shifted on. And I don't think we quite catch the seriousness of what this shift in its totality means. And I should note that there are two groups. There's the older members of the church. There's the older men, the older women. And they were raised with a certain kind of Mormonism. And the church is doing a beautiful job of letting those members age and die without ever having to come to grips with the new Mormonism that is happening right now. Like they don't even get, they don't even connect the dots to what is happening. And then our, and then the church is also doing a beautiful beautiful job with the young people of the church, the youth of the church. They are being raised with this new Mormonism without any awareness that their parents had something deeply different. And I want to give the church credit here. Like, it's doing a beautiful job of this. I, I think it is, in some ways, deceptive. And I will say this, too. This new curriculum that we have this year... Um, Let me tell you point blank what the purpose of this curriculum is. The purpose of this new curriculum is to keep out of the discussion, to keep out of any manual in front of you, any kind of history. In other words, the first Sunday is like a welfare council. We all sit around in priesthood and relief society, and we discuss the welfare needs of the, the church, of our ward, of our branch. The second and third Sunday, we are going to use general conference talks from the most recent general conference. And then the fourth Sunday, we're going to talk about a general platitude or a general principle that has also been laid out uh, in that general conference enzyme. And if you notice, what is not there is any conversation about the past, any conversation about our history. And so don't, don't think for a second that this is about uh, softening us up and making us just be nicer to each other. The reality of this is that the discussions are designed to create a generational gap where for a generation long, we do not discuss the history of the church on Sundays. And as as we distance ourselves from our history, it's going to make this shift much, much easier for the church to make with as little people leaving as possible in this this traumatic moment in Mormonism. So I want to talk about six things. The first one is that the church has distanced itself 
from the power of the priesthood. Now, we're still going to use the language because it's crucial to our truth claims that the church has priesthood power, that the church has keys, that the church administers the saving ordinances. But as Radio Free Mormon has pointed out in some of his episodes, every conference talk that discusses someone getting hands laid on their head to be healed, the person dies. And every conversation around faith to be healed revolves now around faith not to be healed. For instance, Elder Bednar taught this idea that we ought to have faith not to be healed in these moments. That faith not to be healed is greater than faith to be healed. So if our stories in conference are that when blessings happen, people die, and that you ought to get used to it, and that faith not to be healed is more important. You recognize that what the church is doing is watering down the power of the priesthood to heal. Because science and data and studies dictate that putting oil on someone's head and putting hands on their head from a certain religion has no extra beneficial effect from any other religion doing their ordinance Or for that matter, my own guess would be if an atheist walked in and just crossed his fingers and wished them well. That if you can remove the placebo effect, which there are ways and studies to do that, you essentially have no connection between virgin olive oil laid on, you know, placed on someone's, the crown of their head with hands from a worthy priesthood holder has no statistical benefit. So the church, number one, has watered down the actual ability of the priesthood to perform miracles that can't otherwise be explained. We did an episode on this where we we talked about the idea that not a single person, you know, for instance, I'll just throw this out there. Anybody who's lost a finger or lost a limb or lost an ear or a toe completely severed off in an accident and you received a blessing. If any of you have had your limb restored, your ear restored, your toe restored, your finger restored, would you please message me? If you've had an eyeball eyeball gouged out and you had elders lay hands on your head and when they were done, your eye was restored back to its proper place and you were able to see, would you please message me? Because the church is coming to grips that we are in an information age, and that in an information age, you can no longer make dramatic claims that your religion can, can do supernatural God magic things that nobody else can do. And so you're seeing the church water down the power of the priesthood. Number two, the church has distanced itself from leaders speaking directly to God. Elder Oaks, on two occasions, at the Boise Rescue and at a youth fireside, did just this. At the Boise Rescue, Elder Oaks, who is now the first counselor in the first presidency, said that to be a special witness of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with a visitation from Christ. That it means to testify of the plan, of the work, of the mission of Jesus, but that he is a special witness of Christ 
in the same way that all of us are special witnesses of Christ by the power of the Holy Ghost. In a youth fireside, a young lady said, I want to have a conversion experience like that of Alma, the younger. I want to have a visitation from a ministering angel or perhaps from Jesus himself. She's, she's looking for this dramatic thing and she specifically points out Alma the younger. And Elder Oaks says he's never had that experience. None of his brethren that he know, knows of among the 12 have had that experience. None of the brethren he knows of in the first presidency's had that experience. He, he goes on to say, like, I don't know, maybe they've had it, but, but collectively we've not had that experience. And once you recognize what he's doing, which is to water down these spiritual experiences. And again, it happened in the recent broadcast with Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard, where Elder, I don't forget which one it was, but one of them said, you should not, you should not expect to have a voice. You should not expect to have a visitation. Those aren't going to happen. Like point blank, those aren't going to happen. And Radio Free Mormon has done an episode on this, where he shows like the early church told you that, you know, spiritual experiences of hearing voices and seeing angels, you can fully expect that that's going to happen to folks you know, if not yourself, within your congregation, within the restoration. And now the church has distanced itself from its leaders speaking to God and it's distanced itself from its members speaking to God. And once you recognize that, you realize like, oh, they have completely watered down what revelation means in the LDS church today versus what it meant to Elder Bruce R. McConkie or Joseph Fielding Smith or Spencer W. Kimball or Ezra Taft Benson or Harold B. Lee decades ago. Number three, the information age has imposed that most of our faith-promoting miracle stories are problematic or false. When you look at stories in our gospel doctrine manual, like the Sweetwater Crossing, like Thomas Martian milk strippings, like Simon's Rider leaving over his name spelled wrong, like Brigham Young's Transfiguration. These are all deeply problematic, and some of them are demonstrably false. And I had somebody write me, I don't have the message uh, at my fingertips, but somebody wrote me and said, Bill, the same thing occurs in the primary manual. And they listed like 18 miracle stories that were deeply, deeply problematic. Take that along with the two stories in General Conference that Radio Free Mormon did a year ago, where he exposed that this tsunami in Japan and also this uh, ward building that caught fire and that the fire crew came and rescued the artwork out of the building, that those stories were so embellished as to make them miraculous when once you understood the data, they were certainly tragic they were certainly these extreme moments where something serious is taking place, but that the miraculous that is talked about in conference simply doesn't hold up once you have the information. You have Elder Holland recently telling a story about an a, a older brother who goes astray in the family and the younger brother goes on a mission and is sent to this guy's very area. And there's all these miracles involved when he gets to this brother's house. 
and we find out that that story was highly embellished and the, when the basic facts are understood, the miraculous nature of the story is gone. So what you're running into is that in an information age, the brethren can no longer tell false embellished stories in order to boost faith. They will be called out on it. They can no longer tell stories in general conference. And you bet your bottom dollar that in the next 10 years, the church will have to redo its manuals and remove all of these problematic miracle stories because the data doesn't support them. So you now have a church that has very little in terms of faith-promoting miracle stories that are demonstrably true. And so all we do is get caught with our hand in the cookie jar telling false, over-embellished, overreaching, false faith-promoting stories. Even things like John Taylor's watch saving his life or Lorenzo Snow seeing Jesus in the temple, these stories are deeply problematic. Our manuals are full of them, We have recounted these at general conference. We've created new faith-promoting stories that our, our general authorities tell. And they're all, little by little, going to be removed or disavowed or exposed. Number four, the church's historical truth claims are deeply problematic. It has interpreted its history so miserably That membership has lost trust and increasingly lost trust in its ability to interpret itself. First Vision, Book of Abraham, Priesthood Restoration, large chunks of 19th century material in the Book of Mormon, seer stones and hats, the three witnesses and the eight witnesses when you actually look at what they said as a totality, the extensive practice of treasure digging, unhealthy mechanisms in implementing polygamy, the deceptiveness in putting forth certain narratives that seem to be inaccurate at every turn. The church is having to redefine its history And it is having to be open and honest about how problematic its history is. When you go back 20 years ago, the church's narrative that it told was beautiful and simple and faith-promoting. And it boosted people's um, confidence in their religion. Today, when the church is compelled by the information age to be transparent and vulnerable, it exposes the actual history which causes a loss of trust, both because the church told an inaccurate story first and only corrected it once the information age showed that it got caught again with its hand in the cookie jar. And it also loses trust because when the members hear the real narrative, they realize it is a thousandfold more messy than the story the church had told it. In other words, the data is now problematic and the data is also different. And this is causing an exponentially growing loss of trust with membership to their leaders and to their institution. Number five, the church has essentially disavowed the majority of things that made it unique and peculiar. The Mormonism of Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie that was the foundation of growth 
that the church experienced in the 70s and 80s and 90s is now exposed to an information age and is considered so absurd that much of it has been swept under the rug or disavowed. The Gulf of Mexico being the city of Enoch, Quetzalcoatl being Jesus, evolution being a heresy, the age of the earth being 6,000 years old, no death before the fall, a global flood, a tower of Babel, Jaredite barges. The idea of all the speculation that these previous leaders did on birth control and tarot cards and Ouija boards and going to the circus and all the other crazy stuff that these leaders felt comfortable speculating on and imposing as Mormon doctrine. All of it is gone or being swept away or being exposed as absurd. Once one values the data and the science and is willing to go where the data leads rather than simply look to find support for their comfortable beliefs, then many of these things become crazy and absurd and have to be let go. Hence, you see the church not take a definitive stance on any of these issues anymore and instead tend to deflect or dismiss when questions or conversations are around them. A major one, for instance, is the race and priesthood. The church, all of its leaders from 1977 all the way back to Brigham Young, taught that the ban was from God and the reasons behind the ban were from God. Only to have the church today say, yeah, not exactly. Number six, Mormonism has killed all creativity by membership and its leadership. Elder Oaks has stated in a recent YSA broadcast that if you get a revelation that is different than what the leaders have taught you, you can know with certainty that you got your revelation from the wrong source. This rhetoric kills creativity as this pushes members into a corner where they sense that anything new is wrong. In other words, there's no ability to come up with new ideas, new concepts, new policies, new procedures, unless it comes from the very top. This isn't the way the church was set up. This isn't the way it's been done. But now creativity is completely killed. Why? Because the church is afraid of both sides of the coin if they decide to give members any of that flexibility back. One side of the coin is the progressive ex-Mormon tangent, which are those who realizing as they are allowed creativity and they begin to explore and they begin to think for themselves and they begin to read more material and come up with their own ideas is they come across the data and they decide that Mormonism is a myth and they little by little deconstruct it until they're either holding a simply a mythical faith or they're out of the church. But the other side of the coin is that as folks become uh, creative and exploring the data, they come to the conclusion that Mormonism started on something true, 
but that its leaders no longer have any access to revelation because they're experiencing creativity in a way that shows like, wow, I'm having new ideas and new concepts and revelation given to me. But these men seem to not be getting any of this. And so they go looking for other sources of that revelation, including people like Denver Snuffer. And so the leadership of the church feels like it's caught in a quagmire. It's caught in a Sophie's choice, where regardless of what it picks, it's going to lose. And so what it's done is it has shriveled up and it has crawled into the fetal position and it is not allowing any room or flexibility outside of those top 15 men because they realize how dangerous it is on one side of the coin or the other. The leadership is so threatened by both progressive voices pointing out the contradictions on one side and then the other voices like Denver Snuffer on the other that they are paralyzed and unable to move in any direction and hence must impose that membership too stay in lockstep with them. This has created a religious institution afraid it will misstep with any move it makes and afraid of the risk allowing members room to do anything differently. It senses that to allow creativity and new ideas simply welcomes new Delins and new snuffers. And I mean that. So once you recognize that paradigm and you recognize all the church has given up, it's, it's the power of the priesthood, revelation and what it means to speak to God, it's truth claims being deeply problematic, it's miracle stories being demonstrably false or deeply problematic, it's disavowed all the cool things that made it unique in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and earlier. And it's killed all creativity with its leadership and its membership. And so what you have is a branch that is beginning to shrivel up. And some would even say that it's a dead branch. And the worry is that the whole tree may die. And my concern is that the church really only has two options. And those two options both are a lose-lose for the church. And I don't think it gathers this yet. It's still trying to fight its way through this, but I don't think it sees the end. So with the information in our face, let me propose the conclusion, which is that one, we can hold our ground. We can continue to be rigid, continue to try and whitewash our history, continue to not be fully transparent, continue to not create a mechanism that allows transparent and vulnerable conversations within our church meetings. And the church can continue to try and pretend like all this adds up in a way that somehow is unexplainable. But what happens is the church shrinks. And when the church shrinks, what that means is eventually it becomes essentially so irrelevant that even in states like Utah and Arizona and Idaho, it will have so little influence that buildings will be empty. Think about it. If the church keeps holding on to rigid dogma that is demonstrably problematic, then what is it? What does it have? And the, and the whole thing would be that it shrinks. And we're already seeing it happen. The church is no longer growing. 
It is shrinking. It is getting smaller. It is being reduced. The other option it has is to acknowledge all of this, to be transparent, to be vulnerable, and to say like, yeah, we've got some serious issues in in our history, in our theology, in our practice, and in how we treat others. And here they are, and let's be honest with them, let's talk about them, and let's admit that we are this seriously flawed. But what happens Again, it shrinks. If the church becomes, say, the community of Christ, it again shrinks and is something that is not vibrant. So in either case, whatever choice it makes, it's going to get smaller in an information age. And so its choices, regardless, it's going to shrink either way. So the only choice it gets to make is whether it wants to remain dogmatic Hence, maintain its rigidity and its unhealthiness and the trauma that it causes others. And it can shrink, looking like something that was unhealthy and deserved to die. Or it can become loving and inclusive and transparent and vulnerable. And it'll shrink anyway but at least it will shrink as something beautiful and respected. So my question to you is what is left? May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Go